Chapter Eight of Walpole by John Morley. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Cabinet, Part Two. There are other illustrations of the change that has taken place in this direction. For instance, Queen Anne herself wrote dispatches to her generals and ministers abroad. Again, when Buys, the Dutch pensionary, came over to argue against the peace, he had a private audience of the Queen the secretary of state no doubt being present the envoy made her a long discourse she listened to him with great patience told him that the burdens of the war were too heavy to be longer borne and desired him to confer with her ministers meaning however the committee of council and not ministers in cabinet footnote bolingbroke's correspondence twenty third october seventeen eleven end footnote Maffei had a similar interview on the part of Savoy. No foreign envoy would now be allowed to address the sovereign personally upon national business, though the distinctive mark of an ambassador is that he is, and a minister is not, entitled to personal access to the sovereign. In modern practice, when the Secretary of State introduces an ambassador, it is the Secretary who breaks the seal of the letter of credit before the ambassador presents it to the queen. Passing from the sovereign to her ministers, we find the relations of the Secretary of State to the cabinet, at least during the negotiations of the Peace of Utrecht, such as would now be held distinctly unconstitutional. St. John, when Secretary of State, invites the British representatives abroad to keep up a double correspondence with him, and to write not merely, quote, letters containing the general thread of business, which are read in cabinet, end quote, but also private letters with such secret particulars as may not be properly communicated even to the cabinet till the queen should think fit. He explains as one of the advantages of these personal letters that the minister is under no obligation to leave them behind him in his office. Footnote. To Lord Bath, 8th May, 1711. End footnote. No doubt, private and unofficial correspondence of that kind is still a common channel of important information, but no minister would deliberately hide it from his colleagues for purposes of his own, as Louis XV worked his sinister system of double correspondence against his own servants. Bolingbroke goes much farther. He even sends to the ambassador the project of the peace, without having communicated it to the cabinet footnote sixth april and sixth may seventeen eleven and footnote the memorable decision to create twelve peers in a day was taken without reference to the body whose collective assent to so momentous a step would to-day be regarded as not any less indispensable a preliminary than the assent of the sovereign herself footnote to strafford first january seventeen eleven and footnote it is easy to see to what point the evolution of cabinet government was brought in walpole's time and by his influence two circumstances were essential to the growth of this form of government in the british type one was the absence of the sovereign of which i have already spoken how great a difference that makes was shown by the effect of louis the eighteenth and louis philippe sitting at the head of the table, as the President of the French Republic now does, 
while their ministers discussed business the second essential is the presence of ministers in the legislature the founders of the american constitution as all know followed montesquieu's phrases if not his design about separating legislature from executive by excluding ministers from both houses of congress this is fatal to any reproduction of the english system the american cabinet is vitally unlike our own on this account if walpole had taken the line afterwards adopted at philadelphia ministerial responsibility would have borne a very different sense from that with which we are now so familiar as almost to regard it as of divine ordinance in no direction did walpole give a more important turn to our affairs he imparted a decisive bias at a highly critical moment though the struggle was a long one it is to walpole more especially that we owe it that government in england is carried on not by royal or imperial ministers as in prussia nor by popular ministers as in the united states but by parliamentary ministers in this view the reader will perhaps not regard it as an irrelevant digression if we devote a page or two to recalling what government by parliamentary ministers is and how it is worked the principal features of our system of cabinet government today are four the first is the doctrine of collective responsibility each cabinet minister carries on the work of a particular department and for that department he is individually answerable when pitt's administration came to an end in eighteen o one and lord loughborough was displaced from the woolsack the ex-chancellor to the amazement of the new prime minister kept the key of the cabinet boxes and actually without being summoned attended meetings of the cabinet at last addington wrote to beg him to discontinue his attendance on the principle that quote, the number of the cabinet should not exceed that of the persons whose responsible situations in office require their being members of it end quote. in addition to this individual responsibility he shares to a very large extent a collective responsibility with all other members of the government for anything of high importance that is done in every other branch of the public business besides his own the question whether the mistakes or misdeeds of one minister involves all the rest is of course not quite independent of the position of the minister or of the particular action the censure and impeachment of lord melville for example was so purely personal in its bearings that it did not break up the government of mr pitt but as a general rule every important piece of departmental policy is taken to commit the entire cabinet and its members stand or fall together the chancellor of the exchequer may be driven from office by a bad dispatch from the foreign office and an excellent home secretary may suffer for the blunders of a stupid minister of war the cabinet is a unit a unit as regards the sovereign and a unit as regards the legislature its views are laid before the sovereign and before parliament as if they were the views of one man it gives its advice as a single whole both in the royal closet and in the hereditary or the representative chamber if that advice be not taken provided the matter of it appear to be of proper importance 
then the cabinet before or after an appeal to the electors dissolves itself and disappears the first mark of the cabinet as that institution is now understood is united and indivisible responsibility the second mark is that the cabinet is answerable immediately to the majority of the house of commons and ultimately to the electors whose will creates that majority responsibility to the crown is slowly ceasing to be more than a constitutional fiction though even as a fiction it possesses many practical conveniences william the fourth it is true dismissed the melbourne government in eighteen thirty four of his own motion and sir robert peel stuck to the helm for his hundred days in spite of a hostile majority but though such experiments may by bare possibility recur they will hardly recur often and they will never last long the only real responsibility is to the house of commons responsibility to the house of lords means no more than that house may temporarily resist bills of which it disapproves until the sense of the electors of the house of commons has been taken upon them even in walpole's time when the house of lords passed a motion of censure upon the spanish convention in seventeen thirty nine the minister paid no attention to it footnote cox chapter four page fifty eight and footnote third the cabinet is except under uncommon peculiar and transitory circumstances selected exclusively from one party there have been coalitions of men of opposite parties but in most cases down to the present time coalition has been only the preliminary of fusion there have been conjunctions again of men openly holding directly opposite opinions on subjects going to the very foundations of government and turning on the very principles that mark party difference lord liverpool's ministry for instance lasted for fourteen years with so important an issue as catholic emancipation left an open question but notwithstanding both coalitions and open questions it remains generally true that cabinets are made from one party fourth the prime minister is the keystone of the cabinet arch although in cabinet all its members stand on an equal footing speak with equal voice and on the rare occasions when a division is taken are counted on the fraternal principle of one man one vote yet the head of the cabinet is primus inter pares and occupies a position which so long as it lasts is one of exceptional and peculiar authority it is true that he is in form chosen by the crown but in practice the choice of the crown is pretty strictly confined to the man who is designated by the acclamation of a party majority if a party should chance to be divided or uncertain as to its leader then undoubtedly the favour of the crown might suffice to turn the balance there might be some exaggeration in saying that the veto of the crown on a first minister is virtually as dead as its veto on a bill still the crown could hardly exercise any real power either of selection or exclusion against the marked wishes of the constituencies the prime minister once appointed chooses his own colleagues and assigns to them their respective offices it sometimes happens that in the case of very important colleagues 
they are almost as effectually designated to him by public opinion and parliamentary position as he is himself designated to the sovereign for his own high office still there is more than a margin for his free exercise of choice in the persons admitted to his cabinet and in all cases it is for him alone to settle the distribution of posts constitutional respect for the crown would inspire a natural regard for the personal wishes of the sovereign in recommendations to office but royal predilections or prejudices will undoubtedly be less and less able to stand against the prime minister's strong view of the requirements of the public service the flexibility of the cabinet system allows the prime minister in an emergency to take upon himself a power not inferior to that of a dictator provided always that the house of commons will stand by him in ordinary circumstances he leaves the heads of departments to do their work in their own way it is their duty freely and voluntarily to call him into council on business of a certain order of importance with the foreign secretary alone he is in close and continuous communication as to the business of his office foreign affairs must always be the matter of continuous thought in the mind of the prime minister they are not continuously before the cabinet it has not therefore the same fullness of information as the prime minister and consequently in this important department of public action the cabinet must for the most part unless there be some special cause of excitement depend upon the prudence and watchfulness of its head in case of differences arising between departments it is to the prime minister that the appeal lies and the regular course for a minister who is dissatisfied with his chief's decision is to retire where the prime minister is displeased with the language or the action of a colleague he possesses indeed no direct prerogative to call for his resignation without going first to the sovereign and procuring her assent but that assent could practically never be refused to a prime minister with a parliamentary majority unless the sovereign were prepared to take new advisers and face a dissolution though it is just conceivable that the sovereign might remonstrate successfully against the minister's request for a colleague's dismissal yet it is not likely that a minister would make a request of such moment without intending to abide by it and to press it to the end an important qualification of the prime minister's power exists in the case of the crown here it is well understood that the sovereign has a right to demand the opinion of the cabinet as a court of appeal against the prime minister or any other minister it is now publicly known for instance that in the difficult foreign crisis of eighteen fifty nine through sixty one dispatches were frequently referred back by the sovereign from the foreign secretary and the prime minister to the cabinet as a whole and were there constantly modified in the sense desired this is clearly a practical power left to the crown and if there chanced to be a strong cabinet the use of such a power might result in a considerable reduction of the prime minister's normal authority and its transfer to the general body of his colleagues in filling up the highest posts within a department such as the headship of the permanent staff the nomination of an ambassador or the appointment to government of an important colony 
or the great dependency of india the prime minister though not taking the initiative would still usually expect to be consulted by the minister more directly concerned even the lord chancellor is believed sometimes to go through the form of consulting him in filling vacancies on the judicial bench finally just as the cabinet has been described as being the regulator of relations between queen lords and commons so is the prime minister the regulator of relations between the queen and her servants Quote, as the cabinet stands between the sovereign and parliament so the prime minister stands between the sovereign and the cabinet End quote. footnote mr gladstone's gleanings volume one two thirty six etc and footnote this does not mean that any minister is out of immediate communication with the crown in matters strictly affecting his own department as to which the crown may desire to be informed but only that outside of these matters it is the prime minister only who conveys to the sovereign the views of his colleagues such attempts to intrigue with the sovereign against a colleague as were common with sunderland stanhope townsend and carteret and as were long afterwards repeated with particular baseness by lord lochborough when he secretly warned george the third of pitt's catholic policy and advised him against it are we may be very confident never likely to recur here this too long digression may end hardly one of these four principles was accepted by walpole or by anybody else in his time with the accuracy or the fullness with which they are all acted upon at present they all colored and shaped the new form that popular government was putting on but neither the joint solidarity of the cabinet nor its direct responsibility as the servant of parliament had yet approached maturity walpole undoubtedly made a long stride toward establishing the doctrine of cabinet solidarity when he pressed for the dismissal of the duke of roxborough in seventeen fifty two readers note this is a misprint in the text as walpole died in seventeen forty five continuing he did so on the ground that quote, the present administration is the first that was ever yet known to be responsible for the whole government with a secretary of state for one part of the kingdom who they are assured acts counter to all their measures end quote. yet when carteret made his famous motion for walpole's removal in seventeen forty one lord wilmington though he held the office of privy seal did not vote in walpole's defence against the motion the cardinal question of the position of the prime minister was in a most singular stage for walpole was in practice able to invest himself with more of the functions and powers of a prime minister than any of his successors and yet was compelled by the feeling of the time earnestly and profusely to repudiate both the name and title and every one of the pretensions that it involves the earliest instance in which i have found the head of the government designated as the premier is in a letter to the duke of newcastle from the duke of cumberland in seventeen forty six though in johnson's dictionary published nine years later premier still only figures as an adjective the king wished pitt then just made paymaster to move the parliamentary grant to the victor of culloden quote, i should be much better pleased 
writes the Duke of Cumberland, if the Premier moved it, both as a friend and on account of his weight, I am fully convinced of the Premier's goodwill to me. End quote. Footnote. Cox's Pelham Administration, Volume 1, page 486. The Duchess of Marlborough, in her correspondence, frequently speaks of, quote, the Premier Minister, end quote, but never of the Premier. Volume 2, page 152, 181, and etc. End footnote. On the other hand, in a debate so late as 1761, George Grenville declared that Prime Minister is an odious title and he was sorry that it was now deemed an essential part of the Constitution. Lord North is said never to have allowed himself in his own family to be called Prime Minister. A flood of light is shed upon the advance that was made in the conception of this organ in government by comparing Walpole's professions before the middle of the century with those of Mr. Pitt at the end of it. Pitt's view of the position of the Prime Minister was stated in the well-known letter of Lord Melville to Addington in 1803. Addington had absurdly suggested that Mr. Pitt should return to the government either as Secretary of State or Chancellor of the Exchequer. Lord Chatham was to be the head of the administration. As might have been expected, the man who had for nearly twenty years been at the head of affairs in times of unexampled emergency laughed at the proposal. He said satirically, that he really had not the curiosity to ask what office he was to fill. He desired Lord Melville, however, to explain his views to Addington. Mr. Pitt, wrote Lord Melville, quote, stated not less pointedly and decidedly his sentiments with regard to the absolute necessity there is in the conduct of the affairs of this country, that there should be an avowed and real minister, possessing the chief weight in the council, and the principal place in the confidence of the king. In that respect, there can be no rivalry or division of power. That power must rest in the person generally called the first minister, and that minister ought, he thinks, to be the person at the head of the finances. He knows, to his own comfortable experience, that notwithstanding the abstract truth of that general proposition, it is no ways incompatible with the most cordial concert and mutual exchange of advice and intercourse among the different branches of executive departments. But still, if it should come unfortunately to such a radical difference of opinion that no spirit of conciliation or concession can reconcile, the sentiments of the minister must be allowed and understood to prevail, leaving the other members of administration to act as they may conceive themselves conscientiously called upon to act under the circumstances." End quote. Footnote. Stanhope's Life of Pitt, Volume 4, page 24. What Pitt here arrogates to the minister as his just claim and demand, Walpole was obliged to thrust away from himself as a reproach and an offense against the constitution of the realm. When the great attack was opened upon him in 1741, Carteret expressly described as one of his worst misdemeanors that he had usurped the sole power of directing all public affairs and recommending to all public posts, honors, and employments. It was repeated as an article of charge against him in every speech that he solely enjoyed and engrossed the ear of his sovereign. They called him a second Strafford, 
who excluded every man that disdained to be his slave from the pay and even from the smiles of the court mr sandys who led the attack in the commons declared that quote, according to our constitution we can have no sole and prime minister we ought always to have several prime ministers or officers of state every such officer has his own proper department and no officer ought to meddle in the affairs belonging to the department of another end quote. in arrogantly despising this fundamental principle walpole had been guilty of a most heinous crime against the constitution the attack was repulsed in both houses but the minority in the lords drew up a protest and the opening clause in it runs thus quote, we are persuaded that a sole or even a first minister is an officer unknown to the law of britain inconsistent with the constitution of this country and destructive of liberty in any government whatsoever end quote. in walpole's defence neither he nor any of those who spoke for him contradicted this principle they only denied the allegations of fact the bishop of salisbury could find no proof that walpole had usurped the authority of first minister the lord chancellor put his apology for walpole's interference and patronage no higher than that as there happened to be a very good correspondence among his majesty's ministers applicants for places came to walpole not because he had the ear of the king but as the shortest way to the ear of the minister who had the place to give away walpole himself paid little attention to this particular charge in his reply but in deprecating it he took up a remarkable position to which neither mr pitt nor any of his successors would have assented quote, i do not pretend he said to be a great master of foreign affairs in that post it is not my business to meddle and as one of his majesty's counsel i have only one voice end quote. notwithstanding this disclaimer walpole was undoubtedly an example of the important political truth of which mr pitt and sir robert peel are equally conspicuous illustrations that no administrations are so successful as those where the distance in parliamentary authority party influence and popular position between the prime minister and his colleagues in the cabinet is wide recognized and decisive in concluding this portion of my subject it is proper to remark that it would be very misleading to take the arrangements of any one period whether eighteen eighty nine or seventeen forty or any other date as being definitely fixed parts of the constitution to-day it is correct to say that the cabinet has drawn to itself all and more than all of the royal power over legislation as well as many of the most important legislative powers of parliament with due qualifications and allowances it is not very far from the mark to add that the head of the cabinet to-day corresponds in many particulars alike in the source of his power and in the scope of his official jurisdiction with the president of the united states though with the two immensely important and far-reaching distinctions that the minister holds office for no fixed term and that he always sits in the legislature it is possible that within the next hundred years government by cabinet may undergo changes of substance as important as the changes since the time of sir robert walpole but it is worthy of remark that the living statesmen of widest experience 
and highest authority in the working of our constitutional system has declared that in his judgment the cabinet as a great organ of government has now found its final shape attributes functions and permanent ordering end of chapter eight the cabinet part two recording by pamela nagami